In our studies in Genesis today, we turn to another well-known, well-loved passage as we study the account of God's work in Joseph's life. Genesis chapter 40 today, reading the entire chapter, verses 1 through 23. You find that on page 33 of our ESVs, if you picked one up. Genesis chapter 40, Joseph, not only the man with his own dreams, but uh, by God's grace, the ability to interpret dreams, and we'll see the way that the Lord uses this uh, to continue to shape Joseph after the image of Christ. Genesis chapter 40, verses 1 through 23, before we go to God's word, please join me again in another word of prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we are so slow to learn and prone to forget the things you have revealed to your people. We pray that as we come, you would quicken our minds, quicken much more our hearts, and that we would come away from your word enriched to see something of your grace and your mercy to your people. Thank you that the grace that we find is all in Jesus. And any grace and goodness that we have in you comes to us through him and comes to us from being united to him. And so we pray that you would help us to see something of the goodness of our Savior, even as we come to this word of a man in a dungeon and your work in him. And Lord, we pray, uh, give us hearts to see and hearts to believe, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Genesis chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly, when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. 
In the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Here at the beginning, I want to draw your attention again to the end, that last verse, verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. There is something quietly depressing about that statement. It's not out-and-out evil. It's not malicious. It's not as though the cupbearer left the prison thinking, how can I get back at Joseph? It's not, it's not malicious or anything like that, but it's not the kindness that we expect. Come to the end of the chapter, and we're looking for some spark of generosity, some sort of common courtesy, at least the favor of whispering Joseph's name to the right people in the right places. It never happens. It never comes. The end of chapter 40, we could paraphrase T.S. Eliot. This is the way the chapter ends, not with a bang, but with a, wh a whimper. And it never comes. Joseph is neither helped nor harmed for the role that he played. He's simply sidelined. He's simply forgotten. And it says, for two whole years, you notice the first verse of chapter 41, for two whole years, He's there, forgotten, left aside and rejected and abandoned. Now this forgetfulness, this is something that, that we know all too well, I think. This is something that we have experienced ourselves, but it's probably also the sort of thing that we have committed. It happens when you run into that friend that you've not seen in a while, and at first it's so good to see you. What have you been up to? What's your family doing? Wow, how, how long has it been? I'm so glad that we ran into one another. But pretty soon the conversation shifts. I've got to be going. I'd love to catch up. Give me your phone. Give me your, give me your email. Give me your phone number. Let's get together and have a cup of coffee and catch up. And when you say it, you really mean it. You don't mean to leave them hanging, but you know the way that life works. And you go from that conversation and you go to the next thing on your responsibility list, and you're running errands, and you're catching up with lots of other things, and you just forget. Life is busy. You know how it goes. And maybe for that friend, life isn't so busy, though. Maybe for that friend, life is pretty empty, pretty monotonous. And you were there, some bright spot on the horizon, somebody who was willing to listen, and there's that thought that maybe some sort of friendship will be rekindled, and and something will happen in my life that seems to be so bland. And you don't mean to harm them, you simply forget them. And you never call and you never write, you just forget. So you know what this is in verse 23. 
You know what it is to forget. You know what it is to be forgotten. You know the immense gap that fills that space between chapters 40 and 41. You know what it's like to look at your life and say two whole years. This is where we find Joseph at the end of the chapter. Sitting on the sidelines. He's continuing to work away the hours in prison, continuing to wait upon the Lord. And we might ask, what is there to keep Joseph from falling into despair during this time that he's been forgotten? Where yet again, things did not turn out the way that he hoped or he thought that they might turn out. Two years of being forgotten on top of 11 years of being a slave, on top of 17 years of being hated by his brothers. What is there in Joseph's life to keep him from deciding that hope is too costly? Sometimes we underestimate how much of our own lives is spent in that two-year gap that Joseph is experiencing that we know almost nothing about. Not necessarily in prison, not necessarily rejected or forgotten, just waiting, just watching as other things happen. You know, we read the scriptures and we learn all about the heroes of the faith and we see them and we see God interacting with his people at the most dramatic moments. We see salvation and deliverance and exodus and all of these themes and God coming down and all of these momentous things and we, we look at our lives and we lament how much of our lives is merely Monday through Friday. It's just one more thing. It's one more appointment. It's getting groceries and picking up the kids. It's another weekend at home alone. It's waiting for the test results to come back. It's going through the process of living and providing and making it to the next thing. An awful lot of our lives is like the two years that Joseph spent in prison. An awful lot of our lives is like the 40 years that Moses spent learning to be a shepherd in the wilderness in complete obscurity after leaving the courts of Egypt. A lot of our lives is like the 20 years that Isaac and Rebekah spent praying for their first child. And it comes almost in a breath that says they prayed because Rebekah was barren. And it mentions that when she finally gave birth, it was 20 years later. And what's been going on in that time? And we know almost nothing about what's been going on in that time, but it was there. It was the experience of God's people. Just waiting. Just continuing. Just waiting and watching and looking for God's faithfulness. That, by the way, is what Joseph has. That is what keeps him from falling into despair. That is what keeps him from looking at his forgottenness, his having been forgotten, and saying, it's all too costly and I ought to just give up. Joseph has the Lord's faithfulness. He knows that God is faithful even if his people feel forgotten. Perhaps you've noticed a theme as we've been going through Genesis. It's not a theme that I planned Uh, To bring up, I wasn't planning to preach a four-part series on God's faithfulness and his maintaining his work among his people, but that's what we've seen in Genesis so far. No matter what his people face, the Lord is still there. He's still blessing his people. He's still with his people. He's still shaping his people. He's still working in them and for them. We've seen God's faithfulness to Joseph and to Judah in suffering and in sin seen the Lord working through disappointment and injustice, and now the Lord is still with Joseph. He may be quietly in the background, but he's still working. And that two gap years that Joseph is about to experience cannot put an end 
to the faithfulness of the Lord. This is the lesson we need to take away from these verses. It's a call to continue waiting patiently on the Lord. To remember that God is faithful even when his people feel forgotten. Now, in order to see that, there are two pieces that we need to see in this passage. First, we need to understand the reality of God's power, and then we need to understand the response of God's people. What is God doing while we're waiting and feeling forgotten, and what ought we to do while we're waiting and feeling forgotten? The reality of God's power and the response of God's people. Let's consider that first one. There is a parable, I'm sorry, a proverb in the Old Testament. says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. It's a wonderful little blip on the radar screen in the Old Testament to remind us that God's will is accomplished. Whatever he seeks to do, he does. Whatever he wants to be done in the lives of his people, he will see that it is done. And so it is here in this passage. This passage, left and right and front and center, is all about God's ability to bring about his plans for his people, to accomplish his will. And we see that, first of all, in the providence of the Lord in this passage. This is not a passage that just meets us merely with coincidence. That would be the worst mistake we could make when reading Genesis chapter 40 to think, wow, isn't that a coincidence? Now, coincidence is what sells romantic comedies, what are sometimes called chick flicks. And you know them. If you've seen one, you've seen all of them. Uh, You know the predictable plot twists. You know those sappy endings that make you feel like, isn't it so wonderful, and isn't life so serendipitous, and isn't it wonderful the way that anything could happen? And all along, sprinkled throughout the script, there are these little coincidences where the person is in just the right place at just the right time or in just the wrong place at just the wrong time, and they just miss. And how many coincidences? The point of this passage is not to say, you know, anything could happen. It's just a big coincidence. We see God's providence here, that God's will is accomplished. You notice that this passage really revolves around the presence of these two unlikely prisoners in prison with Joseph. There is a cupbearer, sometimes called a butler, and there is a baker. And the text wants us to see how extraordinary it is that these two men wind up in the presence of Joseph. Did you notice that sort of unnecessary redundance in this passage? Did you notice... And I tried to pull it out as I was reading how often things are repeated in those first two paragraphs that you already know. These men have their titles repeated. They're called first the cupbearer and the baker, but then it gets a little more specific. That is the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And we see it again, and it's repeated so that our eyes are drawn to it. Their, Their proximity to power is repeated. How often we see the text going back and forth between the king of Egypt and Pharaoh. Not only are they the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, but they're Pharaoh's officers. The cupbearer of the king of Egypt, the baker of the king of Egypt, Pharaoh's men. And it repeats it, even though you already know it. And it gets really specific where it tells you where they end up. In the house of the the captain of the guard. That is, in the prison. The prison where Joseph was confined. So at the end, we can't go, now where were they? Oh yeah, of course, they were with Joseph. And then you come to verse 5, and you hear the whole thing over again. 
One night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison. Then you come to verse 7 and you hear it again. Joseph came to them in the morning. He saw they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house. And you say, I get it. I already know. I've seen it. But do you get it? You need to understand that these two men were not just menial slaves in Pharaoh's court. Their job was not just to stand there in obeisance holding the cup. These would have been very important men in Pharaoh's court, probably something like cabinet members or advisors. You know, in the ancient world, the quickest way to upset the government is to kill the king. And if you can get away with it, the quickest way to kill the king is to feed him some poison. And so the people the king needs to most trust of anyone in his kingdom are the people who prepare and present his food and his drink. These were very important men. They had the ear of the king of the most powerful kingdom in all the world at the time. They were his trusted men, his advisors. And here they are in the prison with Joseph. You get a sense for how important they are when you think about Nehemiah. It says that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Okay, that's good. But Nehemiah is so close to King Artaxerxes that Artaxerxes notices his sad face. How many of the servants in Artaxerxes' court do you think he would notice if they were sad or happy? Only the ones that he has regular, constant interaction with. He's so close to King Artaxerxes that he makes merely a simple request and the king institutes national policy. Let them go back, rebuild the place, build up the temple. The cupbearer was very important. So was the baker. And here they are with Joseph. And it's God's providence. This isn't a coincidence. If Joseph, didn't, if Joseph didn't understand that already while he was there with these men, he certainly understood it later. We see at the end of the, cha- uh, end of the story in Genesis, in chapter 50, you may recall that Joseph's brothers get a little fearful. Their father has died, and they think, well, maybe now Joseph is going to enact his vengeance that he's been holding out on for so long. Maybe now he's going to come against us. And so they present themselves as his servants. They're not here to, to cause any waves. They just, they just want to help. They just want to be available. Uh, Joseph, put away your anger. Don't lash out at us. Here's what he says. Genesis chapter 50, it says, His brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, even there at the end, even reflecting on the hatred of his brother and and probably that moment that began this downward spiral, as man might look at it, into slavery in Egypt and into the prison in the pit, Joseph could look at that and say, the Lord was directing my steps. The Lord was working. He meant good. And if he could see that in the cruelty of his brothers, certainly he could see that in his company in the dungeon. In every plot twist, in every chance visitor, in every hour that he spent, in every human failure that Joseph endured, this is his conviction that God is at work to bring about his purposes. You see the reality of God's power in his providence here in this passage. We also see it in God's revelation. We see God's power in what he reveals of himself. So here are these two officers, unlikely men to be in prison with Joseph, 
a menial slave. And they have this predicament. The predicament is that they've had some dreams and no one can interpret it. And again, the text is showing us God at work because they recognize a significance to their dreams. It says in verse 5, each one had a dream and each dream its own interpretation. These are not the normal kinds of dreams where we go to, to bed stressed about work and we have some sort of fancies in the night and we wake up and that was weird. No, no, they, they probably woke up in the same cell saying, oh, I had this strange dream about Pharaoh and these three vines. And those, I had a strange dream about me and Pharaoh and three baskets. And, and it's uncanny how similar they are. And they recognize immediately there's something going on here. The gods, maybe, in the way that they would have conceived of it, someone is trying to reach out to us. Someone is trying to tell us something. But here's where the trouble shows up. Dream inter interpretation was big business in Egypt. Their whole religion was built on superstition. They didn't have uh, a, a revelation religion. They had a superstition religion. That meant that any dream could be an omen. Any dream could be communication from the gods. And so a whole tradition grew up in Egypt of men who were able to interpret dreams. They had textbooks for the sort of thing that archaeologists have found, and they've combed back through the ages and seen the way that it worked. And it seems that uh, dream interpretation in Egypt and in Babylon and many other places well, worked a lot like horoscopes work today. Fortune cookies. You take little bits and snippets and you weave them together and a good interpretation, well, it was just ambiguous enough to help the dreamer to build their own confidence so that whatever happened, uh, whatever was going to come their way, they'd be ready to seize the opportunity. The dream interpreters were spin doctors, the best spin doctors of the age. And a good spin doctor in Egypt could make a good living interpreting these things. You know, if these men had been still in the court of Pharaoh, they would have had access to the best spin doctors that money could buy. Pharaoh's own magicians and his wise men with all of their books and all of their magic and all of their incantations and maybe these dreams were the key to our freedom but they are frustratingly out of reach. That's the predicament they're in. Not that they've had dreams but that there is no one to interpret. Enter Joseph with God's solution. Do not interpretations belong to God. What is Joseph saying? I'll tell you where wisdom is to be found, he's saying. It's not in magic. It's not in the wisdom of man or horoscopes or some shaky feeling deep in your bones telling you to, to pursue what your heart is telling you. That's not where wisdom is to be found. That's not where counsel and significant and insight is to be found. Interpretation belongs to God. Joseph stands before all the superstition of the Egyptian religion and he stands firmly on the foundation that God is able to speak his plans and his purposes into humanity. God is able to perfectly reveal himself. He has that conviction and in that conviction he does something really bold. He offers to play the part of the prophet. Notice how quickly he goes from don't interpretations belong to God to tell them to me. I know this God that you're trying to get to, this God who might seem to be trying to speak to you, and I can be the conduit. I'll be the one who reveals the word of God to you. Joseph has enough confidence to say to these men, let's seek God's wisdom together. Let's see what he might be saying to his people. Now, 
there's a rabbit trail that we want to avoid here. The rabbit trail is, does God still work this way? If I need to know something about my future, if I want to understand what might be coming in the days to come, maybe I just have a good long sleep and wake up and, and find a pastor or a prophet or somebody who can help me understand. No, no, no. Let's not go down that rabbit trail. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God's revelation has reached its apex in Jesus Christ. And it has been completed in all the apostles that Christ appointed to speak and to teach about his ministry. We don't need new revelations. We shouldn't look for new dreams or new prophets or new omens or, or uh, you know, some quiver in our liver to tell us what ought to happen in the days to come. But we do need to know that we can find hope in our lives, the same place that Joseph found hope. The same place that he pointed these men that he was with. Hope comes as we acknowledge God's work and as we listen to God's word. As we look at God's providence and we hear God's revelation. Hope comes in trusting that the Lord is able to bring about his designs. That means that nothing happened. Absolutely nothing. Not days of loneliness or missed opportunities, not failed circumstances. Nothing happens by mere coincidence. Now, Reformed folks are really good at reading God's revelation. We are less good at reading God's providence. We're afraid sometimes that that is a little too charismatic for our taste. And so we don't go down those roads. And it can get out of hand pretty quickly when you're looking for signs and omens and all these different things. But we ought at least to be able to look at our lives and all the varied circumstances and the bypass and the, the ways that the Lord has led us and be able to say, God has been directing us. The Lord has been with me. The Lord has been moving me on this path through my life. Isn't it great what the Lord has done? And, and isn't it great even the things that I thought were terrible that the Lord is redeeming in my life? Not to be able to acknowledge what God is doing by providence. That's where hope comes from, to recognize the reality of God's power in the world. But it also comes as we listen to God's wisdom comes when we recognize that our deepest need in life are not psychological, but they're spiritual. Our deepest needs in life are not a better education and a better job and the right relationships and the right placement and the right thing that we can add to our collection. Our deepest need is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And hope is found when we come to hear God's wisdom and we hear his readiness and his willingness to give that love to all who come to him and call out to him. That's where hope is to be found. It happens the same way that, that Joseph found it, as we acknowledge God's providence and listen to his revelation. And so folks, even if you feel sidelined, even if you feel forgotten, hope can come to you as you see God's providence through God's revelation, as you recognize the reality of God's power. Now, the sad thing is that sin in our hearts can lead us to twist even the reality of God's power into an excuse for faithlessness on our part. It's that theology that says that, well, if God is at work, we can be lazy. 
can be lazy in our faith. We can be lazy in the usefulness and the places that the Lord has put us. If God is sovereign, we can be a slug. We can just sit there and let go and let God. If that's the effect that God's power has on us, then we have not understood his faithfulness at all. God's power, God's work in the world is meant to provoke a response in us. It's meant to call us to see what he's doing and to believe that he is able to work in us and through us. Not just to be hearers of God's revelation, but doers of God's revelation. It's meant to stir us to action. And that's what we see in Joseph, the response of God's people. Now what is helpful about Joseph's response to God's power is the fact that it looks so much like our response ought to look. Joseph lived in an age before Scripture. He didn't have a Bible. He couldn't open to Isaiah and see what God was prophesying about the Messiah. He couldn't open into Romans and and learn about the gospel properly understood. He even had, uh, so he lived before the time of the Scriptures, and he seemed to have access to direct prophetic gifts. In many ways, his faith is not like us, but his response is exactly the way our response ought to look. Notice that what Joseph does is he actively applies God's revelation to his circumstances. He recognizes that God is working in the world and God is speaking to the world, and he takes both of those and he puts them together as best he can. We see that in Joseph's uh, request, verses 14 and 15. We won't spend a lot of time looking at the dreams themselves. Uh, There's not as much value in seeing those things, and they're really pretty straightforward. Uh, They're allegorical, they're symbolic, and Joseph already tells us what the symbolism means, and so that's clear, and you can read that. But I do want you to see the way that Joseph responds. He goes from interpreting this dream to making a request of one of these men. Verses 14 and 15, Only remember me when it is well with you. Please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I indeed was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, And here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Now that seems like such a small thing. Maybe the thing that you would do. If you were stuck in a dungeon and you saw an opportunity in front of you, here's a man who is going to be in the court of Pharaoh pretty soon. And maybe he can be my personal reference. I've helped him out. Maybe that's the same thing that you would do. And it seems so small, but... At the moment, the man in front of Joseph doesn't really look like an opportunity, does he? He's not yet standing in the courts of Pharaoh. He is a prisoner just like Joseph with no freedom and no pull and no influence. And so you realize that Joseph's faith, his, uh, his belief and his hope isn't really in what this cupbearer can do for him, but what God has revealed he is about to do. His hope is in the Lord who has Joseph's life and the cupbearer's life and Pharaoh's life in the palm of his hand. And he says, God is going to do this. And here's my best guess for a way forward. When he does what he said he's going to do, mention me to Pharaoh. Please, just do me this kindness. But it takes an awful lot of faith in what God has revealed to get there. Do you understand the expectation that Joseph has and what the Lord has revealed? He's not wishy-washy. He's not hedging his bets. He doesn't say to the cupbearer, oh, you know, interpretation, that's a tricky thing. Uh, it could be this, could be that. I'm not really sure. It could go either way, really. 
I don't know, for whatever reason, he has received revelation from the Lord, and he says, this is God's word, this is what's going to happen. And by the way, when it happens, please remember me. Now, of course, God has not revealed to Joseph what is to come for Joseph in three days. There's a guarantee, there's a revelation that this cupbearer will be released, but there's no guarantee that Joseph will be released in three days or two years or ten years or ever. God was actually speaking to somebody else. Joseph just happened to be listening in. And even though he has access to the ability to interpret dreams, even though Joseph is a prophet in these verses, he doesn't have exhaustive access to God's mind. He's not a prophet in the sense that he can just conjure up his crystal ball and say, what will happen to me in days to come? And that means that Joseph's faith works the same way that your faith works. Where we hear God speaking to someone else and we listen in and we connect what God is saying about what he's doing in the world and what we know we need. Why is it that we still read, uh, read Romans and Philemon as though it has something to say to us? Why is it that we're spending time looking at God's work in Joseph's life? Why is it that we spend time singing the Psalms of David unless the God who revealed himself to them is the same God with which we have to do? That there's some constancy between the God who reveals himself here and what we acknowledge is our greatest need in the world, that we need his grace and his mercy. That's the same thing that Joseph was doing. He was making his best guess. He was saying, here's what I know of the Lord, and here's what I know of me, and let me put them together the best I can make sense of it. And that's what faithfulness looks like on the part of God's people. You don't have exhaustive access to the Lord's mind. So often we hear young people who are trying to decide between this college and that college. Should I marry this person or not marry that person? Should I go down this career path or not that career path? And wouldn't it be easy if the Lord would just say, this is what you're supposed to do? Wouldn't it be great if I went to bed and I woke up and there was a dream that there were three branches and one of those branches led to Geneva College and I sent my application in and let's go there. My alma mater, by the way, highly recommended. But God doesn't do that. And so faithfulness on the part of God's people is reading what God has revealed and reading our circumstances and knowing that we can entrust ourselves to the Lord because he's working in the world and he's speaking in the world. That's the proper response to actively apply God's revelation to our circumstances. Folks, let me give you a challenge for later today. Go home and read Psalm 119. It's long, but it's so good. And just note the way that the psalmist there speaks of God's revelation, God's word, which, by the way, was probably delivered to people other than the psalmist who's writing. Here's what he says. Your words are sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your testimonies are the joy of my heart. Your commandments are my delight. You know what you will not see in Psalm 119? Reading the scriptures is an interesting intellectual exercise. You will not see the psalmist say that the Bible is a historical curiosity that's meant to be dissected. God's word is not just meant to be dissected or pondered. It is meant to be experienced and lived. This is what Joseph did. He took what God was revealing about himself and what he was doing in the world, and he put them together, and he said, here's my best guess. 
And that's what faithfulness looks like on the part of God's people. Now, how that works out might mean many different things. We can't go down all of those other rabbit trails and all the other places where the Lord reveals himself and all the other circumstances that are here in this room today. It might mean many other things, and there is real sweat and toil sometimes involved in connecting what God has said to what you need. There are words in God's book that are challenging and costly. Words like, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. What would it cost you to really believe that word and to apply it to your circumstance? To think of all the people who might think less of you in your workplace or in your neighborhood because you take a stand on a gospel issue. And do you really believe it? Will you really connect what God is saying to where you are? Are we, are we faithful enough to see that the Lord is faithful to us to actually do those things? And it can be costly. It can be simply uncomfortable. You read God's word and you know that you ought to pray, as Paul says, for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions. But you're pretty political. And there's that politician that you didn't vote for and you don't agree with and you can't even stand. What does it mean to make them a part of your prayer life, even though you don't want to? You take what God has revealed and where you are, and you put them together. There are words that we find that are disrupting. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here's where circumstances differ, because some people will read that, and they will say, oh, what a wonderful word from the Lord. And others will read that and say, it couldn't be that good, could it? Because your first proclivity is to take your sins and to hang them around your neck like some penitential albatross. You imagine that they follow you through every stage of your life and maybe you can work them off just a little bit by trying harder and doing more and working better. But God's word says, no, there's forgiveness and there's cleansing and God is able to forgive what we can't even forget. And how much would your life be disrupted if you actually applied what God is saying to your circumstances? This is what the proper response of God's people looks like. If we believe that the Lord is at work in the world, that he's able to speak into humanity, to diagnose our sins and to heal us with the gospel, surely our lives ought to be filled with a willingness to hear and to experience the word that he's proclaiming. To recognize uh, the reality of God's work and to apply God's word to our circumstances. Well, what do we do when that doesn't work out? If it doesn't work out for Joseph, at least by the end of this chapter. He's connected what God is saying, he's, uh, he's put it together with where he finds himself, and yet he's still forgotten. He's made his best attempt, and he's still in the same place, he's still waiting, he's still wondering how long he's going to be forgotten. What then? There's no easy answer to that. If you've been there, you know that. In fact, there's no answer to that except to do what Joseph did, and that is to keep waiting. To keep waiting and to, in our waiting, to look to the Lord and to trust his power and to guard our hearts. To refuse to allow our disappointment to morph into distrust. In chapter 41, after two whole years, Joseph is finally remembered. And now it's the Pharaoh who's having dreams. 
house of Pharaoh who brings Joseph into his presence and into his court. They have to clean him up first, but they bring him out. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, Joseph's answer to the Pharaoh sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? It is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You see, Joseph's convictions haven't changed. Two years forgotten. Two years on the sidelines, spinning his insignificant wheels in a dungeon somewhere. Yet he still believes that the Lord is able to fulfill all of his promises. This is the response of God's people. Sometimes we have to keep waiting. And faithfulness shows up as we wait and we do not allow our disappointments to become distrust. That was the faith of Abraham, Joseph's father before him. It says in Romans chapter 4, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's the proper response of God's people. To grow strong in faith despite human failure. To trust in the power of God to fulfill his purposes, to remember that God is faithful, even if you feel forgotten. Please join me in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we come to you, and having heard your word, we want to be doers of it. We want to approach your revelation as Joseph did realizing that you actually speak to us. And so we pray, make us hearers and doers of your word. And in hearing and doing, draw us to Christ. Help us to see that he is the one who has fulfilled all the faithfulness that you require of your people. And he gives us his grace and his mercy. He calls us to turn from our sin, and to come to you in faith, and to see that you are always there and always faithful, that you never change and you care for your people. Help us to remember these things and to walk in faithfulness before you and bind up our broken hearts when we find ourselves faithless. Remind us that you are ever faithful. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.